old pilot's plain tales. No distant lands. There are no distant lands by Flying the Clipper, the advert read, and Pan American meant it. It was the 1940s, and their fleet of impressively large Boeing 314 Clipper flying boats had truly made long-range passenger travel a reality. It was a giant of an aircraft, weighing 40 tons, and with a wingspan of over 150 feet, three-quarters of that of a 747. It had a crew of 10, two pilots, a radio operator, a navigator, and a flight engineer, with five cabin crew to look after the passengers, who travelled in considerable comfort. The maximum number they carried was 72, although in sleeper configuration that was reduced to 40. There were seven beautifully appointed compartments for the passengers, which included a 14-seat dining room, a lounge, and even a private honeymoon suite near the tail. The four right twin cyclone engines were the first in civil use to use 100 octane fuel and they would carry what was then the largest aircraft in the world, an impressive 3,000 nautical miles. A ticket aboard such an aircraft wasn't cheap. You could have crossed the Atlantic at half the price on Concorde, but the pride of the fleet could take you to such exotic places as Hawaii, South America, the West Indies, Australasia, and such. And Pan Am made as much from carrying mail as they did from their passengers. To become a captain on such an aircraft, one had to be a cut above the rest, as Pan Am only had nine clippers. With the limited resources available in the remote corners of the world, the skipper had little or no backup and relied entirely on his own skills and that of his crew to complete a round trip that might take days. Such a captain was Bob Ford. Despite the war in Europe, it was business as usual for him as he pushed up the throttles on the California Clipper, and with the sea spray glistening on the sides of the aircraft, he climbed out of San Francisco into the evening sky, bound for Pearl Harbor. The next day was the 3rd of December, and Ford was out on the waves again, but this time surfing on the beautiful beaches of Honolulu, whilst his crew played volleyball. After a day of relaxation, they took off again, stopping at Canton Island, Fiji and New Caledonia, bound for New Zealand. It was by now the 7th of December 1941, a date that many know as one that will live in infamy. And as they approached Auckland, the radio operator, Gene Leach, swore out loud. The news of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor came through. The beautiful island that they had left only a few days ago would never be the same again. Bob Ford took the news calmly and asked his radio operator confirm with the Pan Am station at New Caledonia. When Leach had tuned his set to the right frequency, he heard a message being transmitted on a constant loop. Pearl Harbor attacked, implement plan alpha. The crew looked at each other in confusion until the captain pulled an envelope from his jacket pocket that he had been carrying for some weeks and opened it to read to the captain PAA flight 6039 and return flight 6040 from the division manager Pacific division special instructions to avoid hostile military activity Pan American Airways has agreed to place its fleet of flying boats at the disposal of the military 
for whatever logistical or tactical purpose they may deem necessary at such times as hostilities break out between the United States forces and the military forces of the Imperial Japanese government. In the event that you are required to open and read these instructions, you may assume that hostilities have already occurred and that the aircraft under your command represents a strategic military resource which must be protected and secured from falling into enemy hands. Captain Ford was ordered to take the California Clipper to the nearest Pan Am base unoccupied by the Japanese, doing everything possible to avoid contact with the enemy. An ex-Navy pilot, Ford discussed with his navigator the best route to take to Auckland and told his radio operator to maintain radio silence. He turned out all the aircraft lights and, finally, took a thirty-eight revolver from his flight bag and strapped it onto his waist. A week later, Ford was to be found yet again in the American consulate in Auckland. The consulate was the only route for messages, and it was in turmoil. However, after visiting it every day since landing, they eventually had a message for him. He quickly absorbed the instructions, which read, Top secret to Captain Robert Ford. From Chief Flight Operations, Pan American Airways Systems, Chrysler Building, New York. Division plans for November Charlie, 18602. Normal return route cancelled. Proceed as follows. Strip all company markings, registration numbers, and identifiable insignia from exterior surfaces. Proceed westbound, soonest your discretion, to avoid hostilities and deliver your aircraft to Marine Terminal, LaGuardia Field, New York. Good luck. Bob Ford was stunned. In one terse message, he'd been asked to do something that had never been achieved before. In the chaos and turmoil of a world war, he was being asked to fly a commercial aircraft west from New Zealand to the United States. He called his crew together and showed them the message, and the enormity of their task started to hit home. When a new route was prepared, there would be months of planning and preparation. The aircraft would be gone over in detail and refueling ships and stations carrying their special 100-octane fuel would be pre-positioned. Most importantly, they would have maps and charts from which to navigate. They had none of these. Ford set about allocating tasks. He dispatched his navigator to the Auckland Library to try and get maps, atlases and textbooks about the countries they were due to fly over, while the rest of his crew set about preparing the aircraft. In the evenings, they pored over the maps that they had found, trying to work out the best route. The first part was an easy decision, even if it had risks. They would make their way to Australia, but flying over it meant a long transit over land with no chance of putting down safely if they had a problem. The clipper could only land on water. After that, there was the difficult decision of either heading directly to Africa or going via Java and India. The direct route was at the limit of their endurance, and if the weather was against them, they would in all likelihood be lost at sea. The other route might allow them to stop at friendly ports, but it would also take them through a war zone. They decided that the long transit direct to Africa was just too risky. So, with the prospect of flying through some very unfriendly skies, they continued to get ready with a journey of over 20,000 miles ahead of them. 
Their preparations were cut drastically short when an urgent message arrived. They needed to head straight to New Caledonia on their way to Australia to evacuate the Pan Am staff and their families there, as the island was in danger of attack. Laden with spare parts from the Auckland station and heavy with fuel, they got airborne the next morning. There hadn't been time to finish stripping the paint, so the California clipper still sported a large stars and stripes painted on the top of her wings, but their long adventure had begun. The evacuation from New Caledonia went well, and they now sat at Gladstone on the east coast of Australia. Not a drop of 100 octane fuel was available. It was the high-performance fuel that gave them their impressive range, and now they would have to fly on automobile petrol. As they flew the long leg over to Darwin, everyone was trying to work their individual problems. The engineers tinkered to get the best balance of fuel mixture, prop RPM, and manifold pressure for the low-grade fuel they carried, whilst Ford and his navigator studied possible landing sites at their stops. They would often be landing in unsurveyed waters where their huge aircraft could easily be wrecked on a hidden rock, sandbar or other debris which could rip open the belly of their flying beast. Even the stewards had their problems of just how they were going to feed the crew and their passengers for this long journey. Arriving at Darwin, they found the town in turmoil. There had just been a Japanese air raid and there was an invasion scare, but to top it all, the first freighter full of beer had just arrived and the Australians had taken full advantage of its presence. They had the right fuel, but it had to be ferried out to the aircraft in jerry cans, which was a worryingly slow process as it was poured can by can into the clipper's vast tanks. Tropical rainstorms threatened to contaminate the fuel as it was poured into the open tank inlets, but eventually the job was done in the early hours of the morning. After snatching a few hours of sleep, as the sun rose, they got airborne again. At Surabaya in Indonesia, the Dutch Navy were on edge. Japanese fighters and bombers had attacked almost daily, and now there was a report of a large aircraft approaching. Colonel Kernrad scrambled three fighters to intercept. On California Clipper, they watched the fighters bear down on them at speed, knowing that either side in a war might shoot them down out of malice or ignorance. The fighter pilots radioed their report, an unknown flying boat. Kernrad pondered. The safest action was to shoot it down, but then came another call. An American flag is painted on top of the wing. It could be a trick, but Conrad allowed the aircraft to proceed, with the fighters in escort just in case. After landing, Ford met with the colonel, who told him how lucky he was, as their radio was off and out of service, and the area outside the harbour where their clipper landed was heavily mined. The Dutch did what they could for Ford and his crew, but there was no 100-octane fuel available. Bob Ford knew that running his engines on low-octane fuel meant getting less power, and it would eventually wreck them. They decided to preserve what they could of the good fuel in separate tanks, and only use it for takeoff and landings, but they were happy that they had taken on the spare engine parts from Auckland, with the threat to Surabaya, they got airborne as soon as they could for the next 2,500 miles to Trincomalee.
Nineteen hours into the flight, they took their last fix, passing over Sumatra using their crude charts. They must now work from dead reckoning throughout the night to find Trincomalee on the island of Sri Lanka. The engines were violently backfiring on the fuel they'd picked up from Surabaya, with the airframe shaking as a result. They couldn't run them richer or they wouldn't reach their destination, but the cylinder heads were way too hot, dangerously close to the red line. It was going to be a close-run thing between destroying the engines and running out of fuel. As the sun rose, there was low cloud below them, and Ford had to descend 300 feet below it just in case they missed the Trincomalee as it came up over the horizon. What's that ahead, somebody asked. A whale? Submarine, Ford yelled. Full rich, full power. And he heaved back on the controls, desperately trying to find the cloud again. As they flashed over the sub, they all saw the rising sun painted on the conning tower and the deck crew swinging guns around in their direction. Reaching the low cloud, it was lit up all around them with flashes and explosions, and they held their breaths until at last they were safely out of range. The little corner of the British Empire that was Trincomalee couldn't have been more welcoming, but their credibility was stretched to the limits when Bob Ford reported the Japanese submarine. However, there was an invitation to a dinner party held by Lady Wavell, the wife of General Archibald Wavell, CNC of the British forces in India. It was Christmas Eve when they departed with their tanks topped up with 100 octane heading for Karachi. However, they hadn't gone more than a few hundred miles before an enormous bang which almost threw Ford out of his seat announced the failure of the number three engine. Back at Trincomalee, they sang Christmas songs and raised a toast to the RAF engineers who worked on the problem, and by the next day they waved goodbye to their new friends. Finally in Karachi, both the crew and the aircraft were showing signs of wear. At least they were in a major city where they could relax and enjoy a hot bath. They spent a well-earned day of relaxation, apart from the engineers who needed the downtime to fix a growing list of problems. With everyone in better spirits, they quickly made Bahrain, where yet again they were forced to take on inferior fuel. However, they nursed their clipper safely to Khartoum, where there was a well-equipped RAF presence who sorted them out with charts, fuels and supplies for their final leg to the Pan Am outpost at Leopoldville in the Congo. To get airborne, however, they needed a clear three-mile stretch of the Nile, which took a little finding, but at last they were on their way. It was New Year's Day 1942 when Bob Ford opened up his engines to full power and they raced down the Nile. Easing off the water, they were met with a loud hammering noise as the exhaust stack of the number one engine parted company. They shouted at each other over the din, Can we make it? Apart from the exhaust flames licking out across the wing and the noise, they were flying okay, so with a constant fire watch from the observation dome, they set course. Their problems were far from over, but landing on the River Congo joined them up with a company facility, and from there they could rejoin the Pan Am route structure that would take them on to home. 
There were still many potential disasters that could overtake them, and nearly did, but they safely made Brazil, and then turned north for New York. It was on the 6th of January, on a cold morning at LaGuardia's airport tower, when the radio unexpectedly crackled into life. LaGuardia Tower, this is Pan American Clipper, November Charlie 18602, inbound from Auckland, New Zealand. Due to arrive, Pan American Marine Terminal, LaGuardia, seven minutes. Over. The controller's jaw dropped. There was no flight expected, and Pan Am didn't fly from New Zealand to New York. Sorry? Pan American Clipper 18602? Say again? Confirm your departure point. Over. Captain Bob Ford himself took the radio and replied, I say again, inbound from Auckland, New Zealand, by way of the long way around. Captain Bob Ford, his crew, and the California Clipper became the first commercial aircraft to fly from New Zealand to New York westbound, but they also became the first to effectively circumnavigate the world. Quite an achievement, but one lost in the news of the war that America had very recently joined. My thanks to Justin Graham for putting me onto the story.